It's Thursday, December 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Mr. Tim Hansen. Happy Thursday. Thank you, sir. Nice to be here. Uh, good to have you. We, we had talked uh, a couple of times this week about the member event that we had on Monday uh, down in your neck of the woods in Old Town mm-hmm. at Virtue. I, I don't think I've mentioned it at this point. I've got, got to give a plug to Virtue. Is it Feed and Grain? Is that what it's called? Yes. Fant- if you're ever in Old Town, Alexandria, a good meal to be had at Virtue and certainly some creative cocktails as well. Uh, uh, you know what? They've, got, they've done away with the cocktails because it changed they? ownership. Oh, it did. It did. It changed ownership. It's not the Armstrongs anymore. No. Oh. No, it was sold to like their co-investor, oh. and so they've they've. They've and the first thing they did was get rid of the creative. <laughs> well, content. yeah, and and they pulled back. They made the menu a little bit more burger burger centric. Not yeah. quite as uh, oddball. Okay. As it was. Um, still a good venue. Still a good venue. Still a good venue. Not uh, quite as I don't think quite as good as it was originally. It's still a good venue. Uh, um, and you and I both had a great time talking to a bunch of different men- uh, members, and you mentioned to me that a couple of them were like, where's Tim? Why, why isn't Tim on the podcast? I, well, actually, I made, I made that up, which I will <laughs> oh, feel. Yeah? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about what is happening in the U.S. economy and its effect on the rest of the world. Um, and let's start with gas prices. And it's no secret that they're coming down, but I don't think the average person uh, understands sort of the degree to which they're coming down and where that sits in history. Uh, by my count, we are now uh, entering week 11 of gas prices uh, Gas prices falling. This is the longest uh, stretch we've seen since 2008. And that's, I think it's fair to say, for most, cons- you know, for consumers, certainly in the US, that's great. And I think on average for the majority of businesses, that's great. What there about- was one, one pocket of business who's not that happy about that. The, the old energy sector. Right. The oil yeah, patch. Yeah. They're, they're less thrilled about that. But again, the majority of businesses is happy. Certainly retailers happy that- Especially heading into the holidays. Absolutely. But in your role at uh, Motley Fool Funds, you're looking at international investments. How is, say for example, how is Russia viewing the, the falling gas prices? Is that the balloon corn that just fell down? It did. Oh. It did. We'll just keep rolling. <laughs> there is well, Russia is is unhappy for a variety of reasons. They're, so they're getting hit by a double whammy, right? They've already got these sanctions on them, which have restricted their ability to trade and interact with the international economy. And now their main export, um, which is oil and natural gas, prices are are collapsing, which is putting a lot of stress on. Uh, on their economy, on their banks, they've already—I believe—the Russian government has already injected capital into two banks in Russia, um, the the second and third largest banks in that market, um, and you know, and that and with Saudi Arabia coming out and saying we're willing to go to sixty. I mean, sixty is a number I don't think we've seen since I was in high school. Right. Um, you, you know, that pressure becomes pretty pretty acute, pretty fast on them. Now, they they seem to be um, saying that they. They'd be able to withstand it, but you know who's who's to say? Um, You know, and and even in the United States, you know, one of the sectors I look at is community banks, and the fastest growing community banks, and indeed the most profitable small banks in the country, are have been in North Dakota and in Texas, and I think it's pretty obvious as to as to why that you know it was the strength of the energy sector. Um, You know, we we were talking earlier today, a couple of the guys I work with about. The amount of exposure that Wells Fargo has has accumulated since 2009 into energy sector loans, both in its C and I and some of its other um, segments that it doesn't break out 
explicitly, but the hypothesis we have that a lot of that is into energy because they have a pretty strong operation down in Houston. Um, you know, so th- that fall in oil prices, I think, took a lot of people by surprise, A, and and B, you know, it threatens to undo what had been a pretty fast-growing part of the U.S. economy at a time when unemployment remains kind of stubbornly high, and the strength of the dollar is probably means bad things for export-oriented U.S. businesses. So consumers certainly benefit, but I... I you know, it's. I think we're in a weird. I'm not a macroeconomist, but it's 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 a weird global economic situation now with what the dollar's doing, what energy prices are doing, um, what unemployment stayed at, with the ways that different countries are growing at different. You know, the U.S. has been picking right. up, and but Europe's still poor. China's apparently you know trending down. It, it's it's a quirky it's a quirky situation. Uh, well, let's stick with uh, energy for just a second because I do want to get to. The U.S. dollar and the, and and the strength of the dollar, but is there? I don't want to. I don't want to say perfect, but is the is there a price at which a barrel of oil works for most, if not all, parties? Because again, it's it's great for the average consumer in the United States that the price of gasoline is dropping, uh, but I, I also look at it and think, well, wait a minute. If this keeps falling, and all of a sudden, instead of sixty dollars for a barrel of oil, it's twenty-five dollars for a barrel of oil. Well, I, I don't think we're going to see gas prices cut in half yet again, and that almost seems like a recipe for calamity. Well, it's a it's a fascinating question um, because you thank you. you no, it, and it's 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 one that has I think I think lots of people debate in lots of different forms, and, and the problem is is that I don't think anybody knows the answer. And there are a variety of reasons for that in, in the energy and specifically in the oil space. You know, in a, in a rational, logical world, oil would trade at a slight premium to its cost of production or cost of extraction. Um, but there is no universal cost of extraction. You know, it, it's much cheaper to drill a barrel for a barrel of oil on land in the sand in Texas, for example, than it is to go into the North Sea. Uh, in sub-zero temperatures and dig, you know, drill down thousands and thousands of feet into the water. The costs differ, and um, even the uses differ with the cost. As energy, as oil prices and gas prices drop, for example, you know, the market for um, electric vehicles changes, and so that that that's the supply and demand dynamic that's always pushing that number around in terms of what what might make sense for the price of oil to be. And then adding into that is the political and the secrecy issues, particularly around Russia, um, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela. These are major oil producers who really don't want anybody to know, A, what their cost of extraction is, B, how much oil they actually have, or C, what level they're willing to go to and, and be able to tolerate. You know, I, I had heard some conspiracy theories that the the Saudis were basically pushing oil prices down on purpose to see at what point U.S. producers, you know, in, in the in the shale and all these new yeah. um, sources that have been at what point they'd break and shut down. And then they might let it rise again because they just want to know where they'd have to go if in a crisis they wanted to, to get everybody to, to leave the space. So I don't know exactly what all the pressures are that are that are moving the price of oil down um, right now, but it certainly has put a pinch into the U.S. energy sector. I mean, the energy services companies in the United States have just gotten just gotten crushed. The oil sands people up in Canada, who have a very high cost of production, have also just been just been crushed. Canadian oil sands recently cut their dividend. Um, 
you know, Carbo Ceramics, which is a company we've talked about here in the past, I think has gone from 150 to 30 Yikes. in four months, five months. I, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I think I was doing an interview with, with Reuters or, or someone in June and Carbo Ceramics was touching all time highs. And they, you know, the question was, do you think it was continue? Can this continue? And I said, you know, energy is a commodity. The next buying opportunity is always around the corner. Um, I was prescient in that regard. I don't think I foresaw an 85, because if I did, we surely, you know, yeah. um, there would have been a trading opportunity around that. So You were thinking maybe this falls to 100. Yeah, you weren't necessarily I, thinking this 35, gets cut by 80%. Right. Um, so I, the circumstances that are, that, are, that are pushing on this situation, I think, are um, somewhat un, unknown, and, and they create a lot of complexity in the, in the, global, in the global economy. You mentioned the dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar. But if you have an SUV, universally good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, well, let's stick with that for a second because that's. Uh, I'm sure there are. You know, if your job is selling SUVs, th- th- vehicles that were that are fall in the gas guzzler category, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure you're. You're pumped. You're really excited. You get, got, you get to go to prospective customers and say, gosh, look at how low gas is. That's not going to be a concern with this and, vehicle. And look at how low interest rates are. Now is the time to finance your SUV. Um, I think there was an article in the paper this morning that somewhere in Oklahoma, gas fell below $2 a gallon. Yes. You know, wow. <laughs> um, the euro is at a two-year low. The yen is at a seven-year low. To what extent... Does the strength of the U.S. dollar relative to these other currencies? To what? At what point does this become a problem for businesses? Well, here's a funny fact. So, oil is priced globally in dollar terms, and the yen has been just dramatically weakening against that. So, we're talking about how cheap oil is getting. Uh, oil has barely the price of oil in Japan has barely moved because the currency is weakened so much. Wow. I mean, so. I mean, these are the kind of like dynamic forces at play where you say, "Oh, cheaper oil, that'd be good for Japan." They're not seeing it because the yen has gotten has gotten so weak. You know, I think what explains this is that the U.S. economy, after a few years, a few years there in 08, 09, 2010, where people believe that China um, and and some other markets have been sort of doing the heavy lifting for the global economy, Germany. Uh, now it looks like the U.S. is starting to turn the corner after what had been basically. I don't know, was it a decade-long malaise? So does I mean, not maybe not quite that long, but you know, it had it, been a while. Um, you know, the, I think the projection for U.S. GDP growth is somewhere like two or two and a half percent next year versus zero in Japan. Um, China, they think, might fall below six and a half, which for China is very for China, yeah, it is. is very very low. Um, and so, you know, when you when you add, if you if you can get a better growth profile in a dramatically less risky place. I mean that's where you're going to put your capital, and I think that's why you're seeing inflows into the into the dollar. So let's bring this around to and then you've also got obviously the devaluation risks in uh, Japan and, and and Europe as they think about potentially printing printing money, which were the same risks that were th- weighing on the dollar a few a few years back. So let's bring this around to investing in stocks, which is your job. Does do the conditions we've des- just discussed with energy with currency first? Does this make your job? Harder or easier? Uh, it, both. Both. I mean, you know, we were um, going over our, our fiscal year uh, re- stock picks. You know, looking back and saying you know, who who had done well, what had happened, and we, and we couldn't square a circle because 
it looked like all the all the the picks had had done reasonably well. The things we'd invested, but then the overall fund returns hadn't been that had that, hadn't been that great. And the difference was because the funds being priced in dollars, and all the foreign stock picks were being priced in their local currency. <laughs> and so we picked a hell of a couple stocks in Indonesia, <laughs> but it didn't matter because the the right. the um, the rupiah went down so much. So in that regard, it makes it hard because you know we. Generally speaking, as an investor, I've always taken the belief that currency swings sort of even out over time, and sometimes you benefit and sometimes you don't. You know, the, the drag this year has been so dramatic that you know I think that causes uh, me to do a lot more critical thinking about that about that view, for example. Um, you know, but on the flip side, you know, if you do believe these things even out over time, then you know, and the divergence between developed market and emerging market performance has been so dramatic that uh, there are a lot of you know, looking forward, there are potentially a lot of opportunities, but obviously it's hard to buy what other people are selling. I mean, that's often the advice we give, but when it when the swings have been that dramatic, particularly in a year where U.S. stocks have been so strong, and U.S. large caps in particular, like I said, if you can make good money in lower risk things, you should always take that that bet. Um, you know, that, that causes some, uh, some gut checking, so to speak, um, in terms of what to do next. Before we get to our final story, a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, if you listen to our other daily podcast, Where the Money Is, then you already know what I'm about to say, which is that starting next week, that podcast is getting a makeover uh, because it started as a podcast just about banking and financial services, but it's now about a whole range of industries, including healthcare, technology, energy. So starting on Monday, it will be so. Much. They should change the name there to "Where the Money Is Not." If <laughs> <laughs> they're dealing with energy, but <laughs> uh, Motley Fool Industry Focus starts on Monday, so uh, check that out. And if you're already subscribing to it on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever, uh, you don't have to do anything. Don't worry about. We've we've gotten a couple of questions. Do I need to subscribe again? No. It's it should just automatically. Uh, feed just with a new logo. Uh, the other thing, as I mentioned the other day with Matt Argersinger, uh, if you're interested in our Supernova service, uh, you can go to supernova2015.fool.com. That's supernova2015.fool.com. Free guided tour of the service, uh, David Gardner's investing strategies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We got an email from a listener in Sweden asking about international stocks. That's your bread and butter. What's uh, and and Jim Gillies? I think sort of stuck it to him, to our listener just a little bit because the international stock he picked was one in Sweden. So international for us. Oh, I thought he was going to pick an American stock. No, <laughs> being Canadian. No, I, I took that off the board. Oh, okay. I said okay. no, no North American stocks. But what's for people who are looking for international investments? What's what's one or two just to at least put on their watch list? So I'll, I'll I'll name two, and I'll, these have the added benefit of being international, but they also have sponsored liquid ADRs, so American listeners can play along as well. Okay, I mentioned that because at the member event you you talked about earlier, um, a lovely gentleman who we know well came up to me and said, "I heard you talking about Mitra Adapurkasa in Indonesia, and it sounded really good." So I, I went out and I actually was able to buy shares, and I said, "How were you able to do that?" And he goes, "I'm not really sure, and it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't appear that I can sell them." <laughs> and I said. <laughs> He's like, I know, I, I know. I, you said don't do it, but I, I, I just did it. Um, anyhow, so I'm, I'm only sticking with liquid ADRs now. How can you wait? How do you buy a stock, but then you're not able to sell it? Well, I think when you when you show up with money, right? People are willing to find you a solution. 
when you show up with a problem, I think people are less willing less to likely. show up with a solution. Fair enough. Um, I think that's the general rule of thumb there and how you did something and can't undo it. Um, so the, the, the first one is, is Swatch, which people will know as the watchmaker from Switzerland. Um, they are more than just the Swatch watch, but they also have a number of very high-end brands that, um, that, that are luxury watches. Um, this is being hit. Uh, the stock price has, has sold off on um, a the slowdown in China, uh, b the protests in Hong Kong, which have been um, which is a big market for them. But from a tourist perspective, a lot of people go to Hong Kong to buy watches and other jewelry and things like that. And then c worries about um, the smartwatch and how that will displace uh, mid level mid price mid price level watches. Um, I think all three are sort of over. Well, the first two I think are are temporary. Uh, the third, I think, is overblown. A few years ago, Swatch sold off because people thought smartphones were going to displace the watch. You know, you can just get the time by looking at your phone. Um, you know, their luxury business, I think, I mean, those are collectibles, they're heirlooms, they're, you know, it's nice stuff. Um, and, and it's a, just an extremely, extremely well-run company. Great track record for uh, return on capital, return on equity, return on investment. Um, and they recently acquired the Harry Winston diamond brand, and they're going to be opening up some more Harry Winston luxury jewelry stores, which kind of diversifies them away from the watch business, but also gives them a lot of interesting, unique um, inventory that uh, uh, that is sort of can't be replicated. So that's Swatch. And then the other one, which uh, probably a little bit more spicy, is Sparebank, which is the number one um, market share bank in Russia. They have not had to get a capital injection from the government. In fact, they're that's a plus. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, they are uh, they are quite well run. Um, they're very professionally run. They stack up with any, you know, with the Wells Fargo, HDFC banks of the world in terms of the quality of the operation. This that is they're a running. bank based in Russia. Yeah, it's based in. It's the largest bank in Russia. It's, no, I know, yeah. but uh, just the qualities you just described. I'm trying to. Well, that, I mean, yeah. So uh, we we've told this story in the past is that we we had never had any exposure to Russia, thinking that it was sort of too corrupt, too Putiny is the word Bill <laughs> likes to use. Um, we went to a conference all about Russia because if you have an idea, you've got to constantly be testing it to make sure it still makes sense. And we said to somebody, you know, we don't have any Russia exposure because we think the country is not worth investing in. Is that view correct? And, and this is the Russia analyst at this conference. He said, ah, yeah, that's largely correct. <laughs> uh, but there are there are two companies that you could invest in, too. Um, one is Magdi, which is a retailer, which is expensive, and I wouldn't overpay for anything in Russia right now. And the other is Sparebank. And Sparebank is 50% plus one share owned by the Russian Central Bank. So that is a risk. Um, but the management is very professional. And if you look at um, their underwriting and the way that they've built their book of business and who their clientele is, I think they run a very good shop. Um, they have about 46 or 7% market share of the retail deposits in the country, which gives them a 200 basis point uh, cost of funding advantage over their nearest rival, uh, VTB, which is an extremely poorly run bank. And we love to find well-run things in a country where everything else is poorly run. Right. It's a, that's, a, that's a competitive advantage. <laughs> so uh, Sparebank is trading now, I think, for 7.7 times tangible book value. 0. Um, 0.7? 0.7. Wow. And it's growing 20%. God, does Joe Mager know about this bank? <laughs> this sounds like the kind of thing he falls in love it's with. 0.7 times tangible value, growing 20% a year with 18 20% return on equity. If, if that bank existed in any other country in the world, it would be trading for two to three and a half times book value. It does not exist in Russia. Um, and so, you know, there's some thinking that has to be done there. I, I think the price compensates an investor for the risk, but... Um, as always, buyer beware. 
You can read more from Tim Hanton and his colleagues, FoolFunds.com, some of the best investing commentary you can find on the interwebs, FoolFunds.com. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, man. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.